0: How many of you know, who are not from a British protectorate, what today is? Boxing Day. Day. Very good. Very good. Very good. This is a Norman Rockwell portrait of what a lot of folks feel like on the 26th of December. That uh, things have been a little hectic, a little busy. We've had a lot of things to do, and we've gone a lot of places. We're uh, tired. On the 26th, told my family yesterday that uh, the one thing I have to remember on a Christmas that comes on a Friday is that I, I have to go to work tomorrow. Think about that. Not let myself get too far into the whole uh, relaxed Christmas sort of sort of vibe. This is what Boxing Day looked like in. Uh, England last year on one of the main streets. Boxing Day is a uh, is like Black Friday for a lot of folks. All the stores have big sales, and just like here on Black Friday, people stand in line outside the stores and rush in when the doors open. And you know, this is the one day of the year when you can buy that 50-inch television for two dollars. But there's one left in the whole world, and you're going to try to get it. But welcome to December 26th, the holiday known as Boxing Day. It was originally, uh, as as far as my research could go, and my research wasn't very broad, but it was, well, it wasn't very deep, but it was very broad. Um, It goes back and precedes the 1700s, the 1600s, I should say, at which time what what it seems to have formed around was the idea that if you were servants in someone's home, you got the 26th off because you had to stay and serve through the Christmas holiday because there were big meals to prepare and there were family and parties and all that. And so you got the 26th off and you were often given a box, which would have food to take to your relatives, take home with you. You would be given um, a, a bonus, sort of a Christmas gift, a Christmas bonus, and that was usually then you know, carted off by the people who served in people's homes to their homes and to their families in this box, therefore Boxing Day. And it became traditional around the British uh, colonies and the empire to, on Boxing Day, give gifts, um, typically sort of monetary tip sort of gifts to people who served you who did that without being paid throughout the year. So your postman, your milkman, people like that that you would see regularly, you would give them a gift, you would give them something on Boxing Day. And uh, it has morphed into that. Isn't it funny how these things tend to morph that direction? Uh, Christmas, the celebration of the birth of Jesus, has morphed that direction. So many of our holidays keep going in that direction. We're just going to have holidays in which we shop. That's all there'll be. There'll be shopping days. Here's shopping day December 25, and here's the, you know, the first Sunday shopping day after the first full moon after the vernal equinox. Now here's the shopping day of the, uh, the third Thursday of November. They'll just be shopping days. They'll all just be shopping days. It's kind of heading that direction, it seems to me. Um, I, uh, h- how many of you got to go out to Guy's Day at the Mall on the 24th? Yeah, yeah, am I right? It's Guy's Day at the mall. 70% of the people there present will be men, and about 65, maybe more, percentage of the people will not be present. They'll be home, having already done their shopping. But as we begin today, I don't want to just slam the door on Christmas, You know, I I don't want to just say, Christmas is over, it's the 26th, okay, take down your tree and your lights and be done with this. I'd like to come back to revisit the themes of Christmas just a little bit. I'd like to uh, actually turn to the family of Christmas, the core people, the ones that we talk about the most. In our discussion of the faith of Christmas, I'd like to talk about Mary, Mary. And Joseph, just a tiny bit. Uh, Lee Johnson shared with me an article in the New York Times. Was it This Weekly? I didn't look at the, the headro- headline on it. Uh, this week, if you want to go back and look over the New York Times, an uh, article about Christmas that talks about the revolution of Jesus coming. Very, very good article. Talks about just how revolutionary and how Jesus coming to the earth transformed everything about the way we think, the philosophies of mankind, and the way our The way, at least in the Western world, and much, much more broadly across the entire world, people think about their fellow man. And uh, I think it will be worth your time. As we talk a little bit more about Christmas, I want to go back to that concept with you. I want to remind you that this is a crazy idea. This is the most audacious plan ever formulated by anyone at any time. To come on a rescue mission where you make yourself vulnerable in order to rescue. Where you come to rescue people from dying by dying. The whole thing seems upside down and backwards. Where all the wealth, all the, the value, all the authority, all the power of heaven is invested in what? Maybe a six, seven, eight, nine pound package. And that package is placed in the foster care of those two. Now think about who he picked to be the foster parents. Um, I uh, I had the the, the the blessing of seeing Annie this year. I'm kind of looking out there for uh, Daddy Warbucks. I don't see him with the light in my eyes. I know you're here, Daddy Warbucks. Where'd you go? He's hiding. He just took his grandson in his hands, and now he won't stand up. Daddy Warbucks, would you please stand? That is Greg Riber and his grandson, Walter. <laughs> Greg Riber played Daddy Warbucks in the Annie uh, play that, uh, that Pine Hills did this year. I don't know if you know the story of Annie, but Annie's a little orphan girl who is taken into this wealthy person's home just for the holidays, just for a little bit of a celebration. And she ends up getting to choose... This as her permanent home. She's given the opportunity to choose these people, this man, and this home as her permanent home. This is a a wealthy family, a wealthy home. She'll have everything she ever needs. If you think about picking your adoptive parents, your, your foster parents, your adoptive family, if you think about that, wouldn't you do what Annie did? Not what Jesus did. Wouldn't you be looking for somebody who could take care of you in style for the rest of your life? If you could pick from everybody in the universe. You know, wouldn't you want to kind of, you know, you would want good people, good morals, good values. You'd want people that are solid, members of the community. You would want, want, want excellent hearted people who wouldn't beat their children. You'd be looking for somebody with a kind, kind streak. You know, you would like, like someone, but wouldn't you pick somebody who had a couple of bucks in their pocket? See, you're not willing to admit it, but I bet you all would. I saw like two people nod their heads. Yeah, I would do that. The rest of you were like, I'm not saying that. I'm not admitting to that. No way. When it came time for God to place the greatest gift that was ever given to mankind in the care of a couple of human beings, He picked these folks Mary and Joseph. He picked a cave to be born in. A cave! A cave that was not just an ordinary cave even. It was, it was a cave with animals in it. It was a cave where the animals ate and did the other things that animals do. He didn't pick a nice house even. He didn't even pick a warm spot to arrive in. A drafty little cave full of animals. When it came time to pick a bassinet, he picked a manger. A manger has become in our minds this sort of quaint beautiful little thing you know oh that's a manger no it's a feeding trough he decided that his bassinet first bassinet would be a feeding trough now think about mary and joseph you know when you pull into bethlehem and you find there's no room for you right the bible says there was no room in the inn for them right you find there's no room for you did mary turn to joseph and say i told you we should have left sooner possible? Would you have written it down if you were writing the story of Jesus? Yeah, see, uh, Mary, Mary was telling the story to Luke later. She said, yeah, I told him we should have come earlier. I kept telling him we're going to be late. There's not going to be any place for us to go. And we didn't get there on time. And sure enough, I had the baby in a barn. And Luke said, OK, strike that one from the notes. Consider the revolutionary act and consider the humble circumstances. It's amazing. Why would you pick these folks? They look like those guys. We've kind of reviewed the the, the whole troop, right? Zechariah and Elizabeth, too old to have children. What do they do? They have children. Bruce and Elizabeth, we'd like to talk to you. Ready? Shepherds. We talked about them. There were lists of jobs you didn't want your kid to have. And who's always on the list? Shepherd. Shepherds. They're outcasts. Nobody trusts them. You're not even supposed to be willing to buy stuff from them because they're probably stolen. These are the guys who are dealing in stolen sheep. Simeon. By his own confession just waiting to die i'm going to i want to see the messiah before i die and then i'm ready and what does he say after he sees the messiah it's glorious it's wonderful this in, this encounter between the baby jesus and simeon his lofty words and then when he finishes he says okay i'm ready to die now i'm good punch my ticket i'm done anna i've noticed the translators of the bible change a little bit with anna anna is Seven years from her, from her marriage, from her initial marriage, her husband dies. And then some translators write and lived 84 years beyond that, which we did the math last time. which She's over 100 years old, if that's true. Or they, some of them will say, and she was now 84. Well, yeah. depends on how you read the Greek. Either way, Anna is an elderly woman. She's a member of the tribe of Asher. Which is supposedly not even in existence. Most of the tribe, most of her tribe was taken off by the Assyrians and hauled off into, into a foreign land to, be, to be just disappear. She's this tiny little old bit of the remnant of the tribe of Asher. She's in the story. Why did he pick any of them? All the underdogs. You know what's great about this story? Is it invites you and I to believe we could be part of the story. Isn't that what it's about? This story invites you and I to believe that we could be a part of this story. It was the sixth month and the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. This is our introduction to this couple. This is the way we get to know their names. This is, this is how we knew who they were. Over and over again, when you were a child and you heard this story about Joseph and Mary, or Mary and Joseph, in the cradle and the baby and the, and the cows and the. You got camels. Depending on what your pictures are, you got all kinds of animals. I saw a manger scene with a penguin in it. But this is our introduction to them. Just a couple living out in Nazareth, and they're visited by the archangel Gabriel. He stops in to see a woman, betrothed to be married to a man named Joseph. Why her? Why him? What do they bring to the table that might make them be the ones selected? Have you ever thought about them? What are they really doing? What are, they, what are the values that they're bringing to the story? Well, they're from the right family. If we read the two genealogies, we find out that both Joseph and Mary seem to have been of the house of David. They're from the right family. Good, good. They don't seem to have gotten much of the inheritance of David the king, however. That seems to have escaped them. They're from the family of David, from the line of David, actually from the line of kings. They go past David into the other kings, past Solomon, even after the Babylonian Babylonian exile there. Their family branches off from the house of David. But they're not getting called back to the palace for parties. You know, nobody's saying, hey, you're from the house of David. Come visit, come hang out, come be with us, come to the palace. In fact, Herod isn't even from the house of David. The house of David is a bit of a weird little threat to this potentate placed there by the Romans. And so being from the house of David is, is kind of cool and it's, it's kind of interesting theologically and prophetically. This, the child will come from the house of David. That's a must. But it's a little bit of a threat to the king who's on the throne. And so uh, you might want to keep that house of David thing to yourself. They're willing to say yes to God. We talked about this. We talked about the fact that we need to get in the habit of saying yes to God. So when something really significant comes up, we're there ready to say yes. Remember we've said, you know, you say yes in the small things. You get used to saying yes when God asks you to do something small. God asks you to do this little thing, you say yes. He asks you to do this other little thing, you say yes. Hey, don't speed on your way to grandma's house over the bounding snow this week. Go slower. You say yes. And you get used to the little little things saying yes, and then when some big thing comes along and God says, hey, I would like you to go to wherever and do whatever, you say yes! Because you're in the You're in the habit. You're accustomed to saying yes. This woman who we believe was quite young is accustomed to saying yes. When when she was spoken to, these famous words are are uttered. After Gabriel finishes the whole speech and she gets the the news about she's going to have a child and she asks, well, how's that going to happen? How's that going to work? And he explains, don't worry about it. Holy Spirit's got this covered. God God is God. He does what he wants. He's able to do anything he needs to do. You'll be fine. She says, all right. Behold, I want to start some sentences in in two thousand and sixteen with behold, behold the maid servant of the Lord, and I like this piece. Let it be to me according to your word. Let it be to me let let it happen the way you 've described it. Let it be to me she 's used to saying yes, and when this big, risky yes comes along, she knows what it's what it means to be found with child before. You are married. She knows this is going to be a scandal that will haunt her and follow her the rest of her life. And we know that is true because they bring it up when they talk to Jesus. You know, the Pharisees bring it up when they talk to Jesus. They, they talk to him. They say little snide things like, we know who our father is. Watch for it. When you're reading the scriptures, the Pharisees say these kinds of things to Jesus. You don't even know where you're from. We know who our father is. The implication? Nobody knows who your father is. Mary knew that this would hang over her for the rest of her life. And in spite of that, she was in the habit of saying yes to God. Joseph. The Bible says Joseph is a just man. Joseph, her husband, being a just man. What does it mean to be a just man? What what does it mean in your mind if you're if you're talking to someone and and you were recommending someone, you said, "Oh, I know this guy. He's you know you, you should you should hire him for this job, or you should you should let him run your bank because he's a just man." If you were saying this guy is a just person, what would you mean by that? He's fair. He's honorable. He can. Tr- he's trustworthy. The, this idea that this man is just. He has a, he has a habit. Of, of meeting things out fairly, right? He's in the habit of being just with people, of not treating one person better or one person worse just because of the way they look or where they're from. He's a just man. Now, you remember, he's a businessman. Do you remember what, job he, what business he's in? He's a carpenter. He's a construction worker, right? He's a, he's a, he's a, a, a just businessman who works in the construction trades. He's a just tradesman. He's fair with people. He does things right by people. He's a just man. Is that a good qualification for being the father, the foster father of the Messiah? An unjust man would kind of be disqualified, wouldn't he? Oh, yeah, we were going to pick this guy, but he's unjust. No, we're not doing that. Think about when the kid does something wrong. Getting an unjust punishment is never good. He's a just man. Joseph is also accustomed to saying yes. Joseph being aroused from sleep, are you great when you get awakened? Are you one of those people who jumps up chipper when you're awakened? My wife's chipper when she's awakened. I'm not. Early in the morning, somebody comes in and wakes her up at 4 or 5 in the morning. She thinks that's a good thing because now she's got an early start on the day before everybody else, you know, kind of can get up and get around. To me, that's like, leave me alone, let me go back to sleep. Christmas morning, as a little boy, I was always up early. As a parent, not so much. This Christmas, I had to get up early. We had a friend who invited us to breakfast at 7. I love this person dearly, but that's too early to invite me to breakfast on Christmas morning. I went, and I got my mind around it, but getting up at 6 on Christmas morning, she liked it a lot. She's chipper and wandering through the house. She's, I noticed that she started singing about 10 minutes after she, her feet hit the floor. I wondered how the other people who were in the house who were still trying to sleep were feeling about that. They got up. When you get awakened, when you're awakened in the night, or you're just, oh, here I am, what a great deal, I'm awake. Is that you? It's not me. I would have been really kind of groggy. I would have had a little fight with the sheets when the angel woke me up. It's like, he would have had to turn on all the lights. Whoa, all those angel lights. Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife. Now, do you remember the story? The angel explained what had happened. He said, really, Joseph, she's telling you the truth because Joseph apparently already knew about the baby coming. She's telling you the truth. I showed up. I did this. This is about the Holy Spirit and it's about God. Don't worry about it. She's a good woman. She's, a right, she's the right person for you. Go ahead and take her for your wife. And he did as the, Lord, as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife and did not know her. This, by the way, is where the, uh, I believe it's a myth, that she was a perpetual virgin comes from. Note the word until. He did not know her until, that's what the till means, she had brought forth a firstborn son. <clears throat> For those of you who are adults, you know what happened then. Those of you who are kids, we'll talk to you when you're about 17. <laughs> Maybe 20. And he called his name Jesus. Why is that important? Because that's what the angel told him to do. Take the wife. When the baby is born, call his name Jesus. So he did what he was asked to do. He was apparently accustomed to saying yes to God. Are the, are the qualifiers so far good qualifiers? He's a just man. He's used to saying yes to God. Mary apparently is also used to saying yes to God. They are from the right family. They're from the lineage of David. But that's kind of where it ends. These are poor people. Um, There was a a city being built near Nazareth. It was probably why construction tradespeople were being drawn to Nazareth, and it's probably why Joseph was there. There was a Roman city being built in the hills just a mile or so away, and the, the home base for that city's construction apparently was Nazareth, from best we can tell archaeologically. And that's likely why Joseph was there. He was drawn to there because there was work there. And they were not wealthy people by any stretch of the imagination. They, they make their, their living bit by bit. The, the tradesmen of the day, there were, there were no millionaire contractors and construction workers back then. It was a, it was a get you by sort of a trade. It was enough to keep you going, but it was in no, no way enough to have a lot of extra. So it wasn't really about them being wealthy The fact that Jesus was born in a barn tells you it probably wasn't really about their house either. So the qualifying factors don't seem to have to do with their financial situation. They don't seem to have to do with their home. They they wrapped Jesus in swaddling clothes. You don't buy those at Nordstrom. If you got them and they had a Nordstrom tag in them, they were kind of like the fourth time through the Salvation Army basket when you finally made them into swaddling clothes. Because it's tearing up your normal clothing and wrapping the child in the strips of cloth that you were tearing off your old clothes. It's the rag bag stuff. That's what the baby's wrapped in. So it apparently wasn't about their appearance either. In fact, do you know no one ever says anything about their appearance. No one ever says they were particularly handsome people or particularly ugly people. They doesn't say anything really about them. Do you, do you realize this is the most we know about Joseph? When, when Joseph and Mary come back for Jesus when he's 12, Joseph doesn't even have any lines in the story. We know so little about these foster parents of Jesus. But do we know enough? Do we have enough information about why he chose them? I think we do. I think the information is clear in the text, but I think there's something else. Do you know anything about these things? Have you ever stood in front of those distorted funhouse mirror things. It's, a, it's an interesting thing. If you're ever just going by one and you just want to watch the people, you might want to get out your phone surreptitiously and watch because people stand in front of funhouse mirrors and they do all kinds of weird stuff just to see how they turn out in the mirror because the distortions in the mirror create all kinds of interesting sort of perceptions of yourself. The distortions that are supposed to be there to, to create a, a, an odd picture of you do just what their job is supposed to be. Here's one of my concerns about Jesus being given to a, a wealthy family honored by all of Israel from the priestly and kingly lines. I think that their self-perception might distort the reflection of the character of who God is. I think that sometimes when we believe too much in ourselves, we distort the reflection that God is trying to make in us. I think if if this child had been had been given, had been handed to a foster family who had sort of more going for it it might have messed up the whole family consider it if, if, if they ever got to the point where they thought they were given the Messiah because they were so cool we are raising the son of God because well, we were the obvious choice Can you imagine how that would distort the entire image of what was being done? If anybody in the story thought they were there because they were the obvious choice, then what would be the call of faith on that family? You see, for Mary and Joseph, this is an intense call of faith. This is Mary. Yes, this is going to put a cloud over you for the rest of your life. But say yes. And she did. Joseph, I know this is going to put a burden on you and it's going to put a cloud over you because everybody's going to believe either that's your baby or you don't actually know whose baby it is, which may be worse. And oh, by the way, your guys are going to go back to Nazareth to live. If they in any way thought that they were chosen because they were the obvious choice, it distorts everything. Do you ever think that it might be true of us? That the reason God can't call some of us to some high authority in the world or some high authority in leadership or some high authority in church is because we might believe we belong there. It may in fact be a disqualifying factor to believe we belong there. When the Apostle Paul was describing his experience with God, there's this little window into this concept. He says that I was given a thorn in my flesh. He said it was given to me so that I would not become too high and mighty, too, uh, too full of myself. I think Paul understood himself and he understood that he might actually do that. That I might become just too, too cocky about having been given such blessings. And he said to me, this is what the angel said after he'd prayed the third time. Paul had prayed for a lot of people and they were healed. Paul had done a lot of wonderful things for others. Now he's praying for himself and he prays three times. And he said to me, the angel, my grace is sufficient for you. Or um, God, my, ancient, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect how? In weakness. My strength is made perfect in weakness. I choose the underdogs because the underdogs don't expect to be on the team. I pick the underdogs because they know they don't belong on the team. I choose the underdogs because they know they're not getting by on their own strength. I choose the underdogs because they're going to pray. They're going to cry out to me. They're going to seek me for help. They're the ones who are going to lean heavily into me and I can lead them. I choose the underdogs because they'll follow My strength is made perfect in weakness. Paul says, therefore most gladly I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For when I am weak, then I am strong. For when I am weak, then I am strong. A minor player from a big city down on the end of the Tigris and Euphrates, and gets a call from God one day. He says, Abe, I'd like you to go somewhere. Abe says, where are we going? And God says, I'll show you when you get there. And Abe says, okay. Okay. He's promised by God that he's going to have a big old family, and he, he never gets them. And he gets older and he gets older and he gets older, and still no kids. And he's like, "Okay, God, you know, I don't have any children. Eliezer, my servant, is going to be my 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 heir. What's going on here? You made all these promises when I left Ur. Ur was pretty nice. I had a nice mattress. I had in uh, inside plumbing. The people were good. There was shopping everywhere. At Christmas in Ur, there are sales. There's no Christmas where I live now. There's not a, a thing to be sold, let alone a sale to be." Found, come on God, what's going on here? you made you made promises, we have a deal. I got you. look up at the stars. see all those? That's how big your family's going to be. okay, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. Several years later, the angel comes to visit him he's standing outside his tent. God and two angels show up. Jesus and two angels show up and they're talking to him. This time next year, you're going to have a child. Your wife is going to get going to have going to have a baby. And she's inside the tent eavesdropping. I guess in this case, it would be Sarah dropping. And as she is listening. She hears the the, the word of the Lord, she's going to have a baby, and she starts to laugh. A few months later, she started to grow, and she wasn't laughing anymore. And this is the case over and over again. With Jacob, he becomes Israel. With Joseph, the, the, the son cast aside by his own brother's who once humbled, becomes the leader of the nation of Egypt. With Moses, who is, is floated down the river to, be, to escape being killed and hauled off into Pharaoh's family where he becomes a big deal and becomes such a big deal, God has to let him herd sheep for 40 years to get the big deal out of his own head. And it happens again and again and again and again and it happened to you and it happened to me. God chooses the underdog because His power is made perfect in weakness. Why them? Exactly. Because if the world said, obviously them, we'd be in the wrong story. And we wouldn't ever find ourselves in it. If the world said, of course them, If we looked at them and said, they are the obvious pick here. You and I would never be able to find ourselves in the story. What's the story cover? Oh, it covers um, an unwed teenage mom. It covers a tradesman whose wife has died and he's about to get remarried. Who finds out his heart is broken by her. It covers an old prophet who is hanging around, waiting to see the Messiah, and then he's ready to die. It covers the last remaining tiny little bit of a tribe most people have forgotten, who's now probably a hundred years old. It covers some people who are doing the wrong job. They were trained by their parents, they happened into it, they couldn't find anything else, but whatever it is, they're doing the wrong job, and the society looks down their nose at those guys. The reason this story is so full of underdogs, the reason it's so full of people who we could basically all write off as being members of this team, is because these people were willing, available And not thinking they should be in the story. And they're great pictures of who we are and where we find ourselves. These are us. And when finally the only wealthy guys in the story show up. There's only one group of high class people who show up. The the upper crust of society. They do finally show up. They, shine, they show up maybe a couple of years after the birth of Jesus. You know, Herod has all the children killed from two years and under. They show up way late. They show up with great gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They ride in on their camels. We don't know how many there were, by the way. The Bible doesn't say there were three. the wise men, it just says there were three gifts. When these guys finally show up, they're from the wrong place. They're are of the wrong religion. It, it, it would be like having it would be like it would be like having the, the three Muslim sheiks show up. If you were comparing that to today's culture, if those guys show up at the presidential inauguration, say we've come to we've come to bring gifts to your president, would it be good news? You see, when these guys show up, they're, they're completely wrong for the story. And the question left for us today is not what we do to qualify, is are we, it is are we willing to admit we don't qualify? God has faith in us. No matter how messed up our story looks. God has faith in us. And as we took from Rabbi Sachs last week, the crux of our spiritual experience is will we have faith in a God who has faith in us. Let's pray. We thank you for this this courageous event. For your willingness to step into our time and our history. To take on the, the clothing of humanity, to wrap the divine in a human envelope, to place your care yourself in the care of a couple of folks from a backwater town. making it so clear to all of us that your power is made perfect in weakness. And that's why you've called us. Lord, help us not to be overexcited about our accomplishments. Help us not to get too caught up and where we stand. Help us to recognize that if we stand with you, that's all that will matter. Thank you for being willing to come to this planet to rescue us. We look forward to the day when you come again and make this rescue complete. In Jesus' name, Amen.